Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Brillo University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we are talking all about heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, or HIT, as it's commonly known. This is going to be a great episode, something that we see all the time. Thrombocytopenia, you know, it's one of those tough things, but HIT is really important, really important to understand how the testing works, and that's what we want to get as the big takeaway of this episode. You're going to know what the ELISA means and what the SRA testing means after listening to this. You know, it's a super important disease state. It's one of these things that can literally happen to anyone who's exposed to heparin, and it's one of the most pro-thrombotic states out there, active hit. So yeah, excited to get into this. And listeners, as always, we do recommend that you check out the show notes. We'll have some graphics in there that can further highlight how a lot of these tests that we'll be talking about are done. They're good to reference, and that way, should you ever need to run them, at least you have a conceptual idea of what's being done. So without further ado, let's get to that show. Okay, guys, how are we feeling? Doing pretty good. You know, it's close to the local election time, and tomorrow is the big election day. And right now, I'm torn on the mayoral candidate for Nashville, but I think that I have somebody in mind, so we'll see. It'll probably be a game-time decision, honestly, because there's so many candidates, so many different platforms, but election time's always fun. Yeah, they're awful similar. Logan and I watched the debate on YouTube, and it was even during that debate difficult to figure out who stood for what exactly, but some really awesome platitudes were offered, and I'm I'm sure that anyone will do just fine. And this is just our plug to remind our listeners to exercise their right to vote whenever that opportunity does arise. So super important, and what an opportunity that we have to be a part of that. So, well, may the best man or woman win. So guys, today we're talking all about heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, and we've been talking a lot about different types of thrombocytopenias. As our listeners know by now, it is a very common consult that we get on our hematology consult service, and so certainly something that likely somebody has asked us about at some point in our careers already, do you think that this patient has hit? And so I think it's a nice thing for us to be able to talk about and go through and make sure that our listeners walk away understanding this important hematologic emergency. So Vivek, I think you recently were on and had a case for us that you had seen. So do you want to take it away? All right. So I've got a case for us today. We have a 55-year-old gentleman who came in with chest pain, had a cardiac workup, and ultimately found to have triple vessel disease. The plan was to take him for cardiac surgery to get that bypass graft put in. The surgery went well. He obviously got lots of intraoperative heparin during that procedure. And then postoperatively was put on DVT prophylaxis with heparin subcutaneously. On postoperative day eight, he developed a DVT. And the team is a little bit concerned because he also has thrombocytopenia. When they did the workup, they noticed that the patient had an extensive right lower extremity DVT from the mid-calf to the common femoral vein. And interestingly, the patient really has been thrombocytopenic since his operation, and they consult benign hematology to really ask you what you think about anticoagulation with this thrombocytopenia. So I'll give you a little bit more information here. His preoperative platelet count was normal at 294. His post-op day one platelet count is 107, which, remember, listeners, we talked about with thrombocytopenia, 
you're going to consume those platelets during surgery. You're going to consume those platelets as they go through the bypass system, the external machines. So it's very common to have postoperative thrombocytopenia after a major surgery. This thrombocytopenia continues to downtrend for the next couple of days. And then at post-op day four, it starts going back up at 115. So it went from normal, 107 at post-op day one, and then goes down to 115 on post-op day four. Then it actually has a second drop at post-op day six. And now we're at post-op day eight, where the platelet count's 54. So really what we had was patient got surgery, their platelet counts dropped, which is expected. They came up which, again, is common as your body releases things like thrombopoietin, and now they're down again with a clot. So how should we approach this case, and, and where would you guys start here? Yes, that's a great question. I think it would be helpful to start just by talking a little bit about the platelet as an entity. It is one of the cell lines that we describe when we talk about the three cell lines in the blood, although that's not entirely fair. They're not full cells. They're cell fragments the break off from the megakaryocyte. There's a really cool video available on YouTube that we can link in our show notes that shows platelets sort of breaking off from the megakaryocyte. They seem like these sort of simple little things when we look at them on the peripheral smear, but there's a lot of complexity in there. There's a lot of decision-making that happens by chemical signaling inside the platelet that helps them do their job, that helps them figure out when it's appropriate to degranulate, release the contents of all these granules that they have stored up that all play very important roles in initiating and sustaining the clotting cascade. So among the different granules, there are the alpha granules, and in those alone, there are 200 different types of chemical compounds, including proteins and different signaling molecules like ATP and, and calcium, one of which is called platelet factor four, and that's going to be important for our discussion later on today. So that's what I want us to keep in mind about the platelets. They're these complex little bags of chemicals that can release different factors, and when activated, can help start the clotting cascade. Yeah, and I think that's really important to understand the complexity of the platelet. And in this case, Dan, we had an initial increase and a second drop, so we're concerned for heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Can you tell us a little bit about what HIT is and how this develops, knowing that we have these complex alpha granules, these complex alpha granules within the platelet? I would love to. Anyone that's worked with me clinically can let you know I love the pathogenesis of HIT. I think it's fascinating. It was first described back in 1958 when it was found that there was a paradoxical relationship between patients receiving heparin products who subsequently develop thrombocytopenia and thrombosis. It's this paradoxical because, okay, you're giving this person a blood thinner and it's causing, it's seemingly causing their blood to clot. They eventually figured out that the mechanism behind the development of the clinical syndrome HIT is the production of antibodies that recognize a complex of that platelet factor four that we talked about and heparin. Now there's a beautiful diagram of this in a review in blood. I think it's back from 2017. We'll have that linked in our show notes. But essentially the platelet factor four is this little, I think it's a tetramer and it's positively charged. And as we know, heparin is a long chain of little sugar molecules of variable sizes. And so it's, it's very negatively charged. So these platelet factor four molecules and heparin chains can tessellate together like bricks and mortar. When they're present in the correct, or in this case, sort of a hazardous stoichiometric ratio, they can form these very large rafts of platelet factor four and heparin. That complex seems to be recognized by a constitutively produced IgM. 
Basically, that means that all of us are producing an IgM that can recognize these very large rafts. So anyone could potentially get hit. The sort of next steps in pathogenesis are when that IgM, if it recognizes that large raft of heparin, rather, and platelet factor 4, if that causes a class switch and expansion of the B cell that recognizes it, such that it starts producing an IgG and in great quantity, that's the next step needed for hit to happen. And if that antibody that ends up getting produced can then activate platelets by binding to the FC gamma receptor on the platelets, resulting in platelet degranulation and activation, that's the final step that you need to have this pathogenic hit. And when you may see hit alternately styled as HIT and HITT, we add the second T often when hit results in thrombosis. Remember, in its most virulent form, this hit antibody activates and causes platelets to degranulate. That is a huge setup for clots, as we know that that platelet degranulation is the first step in starting the clotting cascade. And so it's, like I mentioned in our intro, a super prothrombotic state when this does happen. And simply because of how much heparin is used in cardiac surgery, it's a really common scenario for this to show up because at some point, this patient's very likely to end up with that stoichiometric ratio between platelet factor four and heparin that can cause the heparin antibody to be produced. So that makes a lot of sense. The key thing here in this platelet is you have alpha granules. Those alpha granules are composed of many different types of proteins, and this ultimately will lead to platelet activation. One of these proteins is called platelet factor four. And what ends up happening here is that your platelet factor four will bind to heparin when there's just the right amount of both in the system. If you're exposed to a ton of heparin, like in cardiac surgery, then that can happen. And once you start producing this antibody that will bind to this heparin platelet factor four complex, resulting in more platelet activation and ultimately the downstream effect with concern of forming a clot. So again, we have this antibody that's made against the heparin platelet factor four complex that drives HIT. So is this how we make the diagnosis, look for the presence of that antibody? So yes, but also not completely. So it's actually quite interesting. And, and I think this goes back to what Dan was talking about with the presence of this constitutively active IgM and, and subsequent development of, of a small group of antibodies that may be targeting this complex. But all this to say that HIT antibodies can actually be found in about 0.3 to 0.5% of the healthy population. So they've described this in the literature in patients that have had infections or certain surgeries as well. Uh, spontaneous HIT is also possible, rare but possible. More often, as we've been alluding to, these antibodies are going to be found in patients who are hospitalized. And it's actually also quite interesting because the clinical setting in which the patients are hospitalized and the types of anticoagulants that they're exposed to will increase the likelihood of the presence of these HIT antibodies. So cardiac surgery, for instance, these patients often get a lot of unfractionated heparin and the incidence of HIT antibodies is about 50%, as opposed to somebody on a med surge floor that's getting unfractionated heparin where the incidence is more like 8 to 17%. And you guys may be hearing these numbers and being like, 
gosh, I've done consults before and I didn't see this many patients getting hit. And that's because these numbers are essentially telling you that if you checked for antibodies in every single person in the hospital, this is the likelihood that they would have these antibodies in circulation. But really interestingly, and we're not really sure why this is, not all of these cases will actually manifest clinically. And in fact, the true incidence of HIT is only estimated to be about 0.5 to 1% of patients. And so why this is important is that when we are trying to make this diagnosis as hematologists, we need to be very systematic. Number one, of course, we need to have an index of suspicion that HIT is likely to be the case here, but also we need to convince ourselves and have a high pretest probability before we send off testing looking for these antibodies. So antibodies is part of the picture, but not the whole picture. And that's what we really want to drive home to our listeners is that you can have an antibody present that's not causing a pathologic process. We talked about that with autoimmune hemolytic anemia. Think about getting an ANA or rheumatoid factor randomly on a patient without clinical symptoms. We make antibodies, right? Dan talked about how our bodies designed to make IgM antibodies against platelet factor four heparin complex. And really it's when there's a switch that flips and it class switches to IgG and really starts making a lot of this. And you've got this perfect brick and mortar of platelet factor four and heparin with the antibody attached that just causes this vicious cycle of platelet activation and ultimately thrombosis. So that's why the diagnosis matters. You're at a 12 to 15 times increased risk of thrombosis. So again, that's pretty high. When we think about HIT, 50% of patients will have thrombosis at the time of diagnosis. Of the 50% that do not, half of those will ultimately get a thrombotic event within 30 days if they're not started on appropriate anticoagulation. So starting appropriate anticoagulation is critically important. And note that this can present as venous or arterial clots, typically venous in a four-to-one ratio, but we still really worry about that arterial clot when we think about heart attacks, strokes, limb ischemia. So how do we go about diagnosing HIT? We've talked about we don't want to send the antibody in everybody. 50% of cardiac patients will have a false positive antibody. If you send this on everybody, you're going to find some things. So how do we risk stratify our patients to determine who needs the antibody testing sent? The tool I tend to use to help inform my pretest probability for HIT is the 4T score. I think this is a really nice systematic way to look at patients who may have a diagnosis of HIT. There are four variables that we look at for this score. And some of them are the T is maybe a little bit of a stretch, but we call it the 4T score. This is both the depth of the thrombocytopenia, that's T number one. So is it a 50% drop? Is the nadir above 20,000? We look at where the platelets seem to have lowered to. The second T is the timing of that thrombocytopenia related to their last exposure for heparin. This is really important. If a patient is completely heparin naive and their platelets drop the second they get heparin, makes it a lot less likely because their body simply hasn't had time to generate that antibody response. Some of that timing goes a little bit out the window if the patient has prior heparin exposure, just because you think about an anamnestic response in the immune system, but in any event, so timing is the second T. The presence of new or progressive thrombosis at the time of suspected diagnosis is another T, that's the next one. And the last T is other potential causes for thrombocytopenia. If there is a definite other cause, if there's a possible other cause, or if there's no other cause. And so each of those four variables can be assigned a score of zero, one, or two. If the total score is three or below, that's low risk, really low likelihood of hit. 
If it's four or above, that's intermediate to high risk for having HIT. And in those patients, I do tend to go ahead and send the HIT antibody testing. I wanted to point out a couple of things because there's often a lot of confusion, especially with the timing of the thermocytopenia, the use of heparin, and so just a few practical points. So remember that, as Vivek said in the beginning, we often get a consult about thrombocytopenia postoperatively. And so remember that there is a normal drop expected after surgery, but typically we start to see this drop improve by day four. What will often happen and what's sometimes described is this second trough that ends up happening where the platelets are getting better as we saw in our patient and then they start dropping again. And often in patients that develop HIT, especially postoperatively, you'll start to see that second drop about that five to 10 day mark after their surgery. And the other thing, of course, you want to be asking though is in terms of timing, when was their heparin exposure, right? So if they got a huge slug of heparin while they're in the OR, well, then that may be day zero. But otherwise, if they haven't received heparin until post-op day five, for whatever reason, then the thermocytopenia happening on post-op day five is less likely to be hit because they only got a single dose. And the easiest way to remember this is just, it's an immune response, right? You need time for those antibodies to form. The other thing is that there's a lot of literature out right now calls to question the validity of the 4T score, especially in critically ill patients. So yes, the 4T score is a good guide, but you need to use good clinical judgment and decide whether or not everybody still does need testing. But nonetheless, the 4T score for most patients is going to help us develop a pretest probability to decide to proceed to the next step. So going back to our patient, we can calculate his 4T score. We know that he had a greater than 50% drop, so he got two points there. His timing will also get him two points because it happened day eight after his heparin exposure. He did develop thrombosis and other. So were there other causes of thrombocytopenia? It's less likely. We're not worried about infection or anything like that at this time. So he scores an eight, which is a very high 4T score. And the higher the 4T score, remember the higher the probability of hit. And so I think I agree, we should probably move on to that next step. So Vivek, what is that next step? So once we stratify our patient into this higher risk, higher probability of having hit, and I want to reiterate something here that's critically important. These models have high discriminatory ability, high risk versus low risk, but they're not incredibly well calibrated that this patient has a 50% risk or a 60% risk or an 80% risk. What gives us that calibration is actually this next test, which is testing for the antibody. So it's an immunoassay called an ELISA test. And it's a commercially available plate with heparin platelet factor four complexes. And what we do is we add the patient's serum, which presumably has the HIT antibodies in it. Then an anti-IgG antibody is added that also contains a chemical linker, and this will bind to that patient's HIT antibody if it's present. This chemical linker, this substrate, will change color, and this can be recorded. The amount of color change can be recorded as something called the optical density. So what we're doing here is we're basically saying, okay, does this patient have this antibody to heparin platelet factor four complexes? We added their serum to it, and their serum has these proteins, the immunoglobulins, and it's on this plate with heparin platelet factor four complexes. If 
there is an antibody to that stuff and this anti-IgG will bind, will have more optical density change. And the actual amount of your optical density will actually give you the probability of actually having hit. So the way that we actually test if somebody actually has hit is through something called the serotonin release assay. So do one of you guys want to talk about the serotonin release assay and how the optical density can predict that? Yeah, so I'm so glad you mentioned that. It's really important to keep in mind that optical density does seem to have a pretty strong correlation with SRA positivity, the higher you get, such that when we're looking at patients with an optical density greater than 1.4, you're really starting to get into pretty high probability of that SRA being positive. But it is important, no matter what that SRA is, provided that it's not in the negative range, to go ahead and to send off this confirmatory testing, the SRA. So what we talked about earlier is that these pathologic hit antibodies, when they recognize that platelet factor 4 and heparin complex, they're able to activate platelets. And so in that way, we can test is a patient serum, is their particular antibody, one of these antibodies that's going to activate platelets? The way that we do that is pretty complicated. It's a test that can't be run at every center and it takes basically a whole day for one of the lab techs to work on to actually get this result back. It's a radioassay as well, so additionally concerns about safety of some of the reagents. A lot of reasons why this test is difficult to do. And so let's just start off at the top. Basically what you do is you take the patient's serum that has that antibody, you call in a donor from the community whose platelets are known to respond in a specific and predictable way to the assay. That person comes in, gives you their platelets. They then incubate those platelets from the donor with radio-labeled serotonin, so serotonin labeled with carbon-14, and then they combine the donor platelets that are radio-labeled the patient's serum, and a variety of concentrations of heparin, a therapeutic and a supertherapeutic concentration at least. What we're looking for there is an antibody that causes the platelets to degranulate to release that radioactive serotonin at a therapeutic concentration of heparin, but for that release to be suppressed when there's a supertherapeutic concentration of heparin, because again, those rafts of platelet factor four and heparin can't form at that supertherapeutic concentration. And when we see that pattern, when we see greater than 20% serotonin release with therapeutic concentrations of heparin and less than that, less than, less than 20% release at a supertherapeutic concentration, we consider that a positive SRA. Yeah, Dan, and the takeaway there, and take a look if you ever, listeners, if you ever do send off a patient's test for an SRA, Look at the pattern. So the typical pattern, as Dan said, there'll often be some control reagents, but then at lower concentrations, so often they do 0.1 and 0.3 international units per microliter, you should see a positive release of serotonin. But at that super high dose, like 100, you should see a negative, a negative value. We'll have a diagram to help kind of hit this home in, in the show notes as well. But remember, lower doses, you'll see positivity. High, super high doses, you shouldn't see any release. And so at this point, just bringing this back to our patient, he did end up having an ELISA test that had an optical density of 0.4. So definitely on the lower side, but still we had such a high pretest probability and a high index of suspicion for this gentleman that we ended up 
getting that SRA anyway. And the SRA test did in fact show 85% release at the lowest dose of heparin, 80% release at the slightly higher dose, and only 10% release at the supra-therapeutic doses of heparin. So a pattern consistent with a positive SRA. At this point, our patient should already be on alternative anticoagulation that's non-heparin containing because he developed a clot and we were worried enough about heparin that we should have switched his anticoagulation as soon as we calculated his 4T score and decided to undergo that ELISA. But this is your reminder that if you didn't do it, you absolutely should put him on something else because you are fueling the fire at that point. So now you keep this patient on alternative anticoagulation, and then in a moment, we'll talk about how long to continue that anticoagulation for. So the other thing, there are some other practical tips, I guess, I just wanted to share with our listeners when we are seeing these patients with a new diagnosis of HIT. Number one, we do recommend four extremity Dopplers to rule out even asymptomatic thrombosis. And that's because, as Vivek pointed out, there's such high rates of thrombosis in these patients. Number one, there are clinical implications of having a clot, but also it's gonna change our management. And again, we'll talk about that in a second. So if they have a clot, we're gonna treat them differently than if there's an absence of a clot. Number two, if the patient is on warfarin and you are worried enough about them having hit, you must reverse their warfarin with vitamin K. And remember, think back to when you learned about the coagulation cascade and the way that warfarin works in this pathway. Remember that there are a lot of vitamin K-dependent clotting factors that are being impacted by the use of warfarin. So because of the different half-lives of these proteins, there's a possibility to induce almost like a warfarin-like skin necrosis that can happen, and also a transient increase in their already super high risk of a clot because of the presence of that warfarin. So if somebody's on warfarin for whatever reason and you're suspicious for HIT, you want to reverse that ASAP with vitamin K. And then in regards to the next step from here, we often recommend patients getting heparin added onto their allergy list, although take that with a grain of salt. Of course, we want to be cautious. We don't want to be giving heparin to somebody without thinking about it in the future. But I do want to point out that it is generally accepted that there is no long-term amnestic response. And what that means is that the body doesn't have a good way, at least we're based on all of our knowledge about HIT now, the body does not have a good way of having memory B cells in circulation for long periods of time. So certainly if somebody has a history, you want to think about it and you want to approach this cautiously. But just because someone had HIT at one point, if they have to use heparin several years down the line, it may not be an absolute contraindication. But nonetheless, we do recommend adding it to the allergy list just for safety purposes. Now, it's so important that you mentioned that, you know, I think that those really are the mainstays of HIT therapy is identify other clots and immediately stop heparin anticoagulation, start an alternate anticoagulant and lifelong heparin avoidance. I agree with you. You know, it is interesting that it seems like these antibodies are quite transient. When we look at people, you know, six, eight weeks out, they're generally no longer there. But just because it's such a high risk thing, there are only right now, anyway, only a very small number of reasons why we would challenge someone again with heparin in the future. One of those is long cardiac surgeries where there's an extended amount of cross-clamp time, an extended amount of time on the bypass machine. In those settings, our sort of alternative anticoagulant bivalirudin, which we'll talk a little bit more about soon, it just doesn't seem to perform as well. It gets inactivated enzymatically in stagnant blood. So for these really long surgeries, heparin still is clearly superior. But 
for the most part, I tell people, you know, lifelong heparin avoidance, get a medical alert bracelet if you have to, but stay away. We've kind of been alluding to this next point, but Vivek, do you want to remind our listeners about how we manage the anticoagulation? How long do they stay on it for? And, and do we make transitions? And if so, what do we do? Yeah, that's a great question. And remember, everybody, that if you risk stratify these patients with that 4T score and they're in that higher risk and you're sending off that ELISA test, go ahead and switch their anticoagulation at that time because you're already concerned and there's this 50% risk they're going to form a clot at another 25% if you're not going to anticoagulate them and they actually have hit. So high, high rates of, of thrombosis. But what are our options? Well, a non-heparin product. When we think about that Dan mentioned it. You can have some things like the direct thrombin inhibitors. You can use something like orgatraban. You can use something like bivalirudin. And the key thing is you're going to use these alternative anticoagulants when the platelets are very low to prevent any more of this heparin platelet factor four complex. And ultimately, it kind of frees up your platelets and your platelet count will start going up because it's not going to be bound up by all of this heparin molecule with the antibodies that were there in that vicious cycle that we had talked about. So you're going to put them on that type of anticoagulant. Often we do drips because it's quick on, quick off, because again, these patients are thrombocytopenic. Their risk for bleeding is also high, right? They are prothrombotic, but as we anticoagulate them, they still have this bleed risk. So we want to have that ability for a quick on, quick off situation. You might be wondering, well, if you stop the heparin, why do we care about this? It's because your body has endogenous heparin-like molecules. So even if you're not giving them heparin, they're still at risk for clotting, which is why you always need to continue that anticoagulant. At some point, though, your platelet counts will recover, and we define that as platelet counts greater than 150 and stably greater than 150. And at that point, you can switch to something like a DOAC. That's always a good option. You can switch to something like Fonda Paranux. So very low, ultra-low molecular weight heparin. You're like, can you use that? But you actually can. It doesn't have the same pathogenic risk as these other heparin agents. So you you had them on some IV, argatraban, bivalrudin, something like that. Their platelet counts recover. Now you switch them to a DOAC or something like a Fonda Paradox. How long do you continue? Well, if they had no thrombosis, if they just had HIT, 1T, then it's one month after platelet recovery because there's a high risk of thrombosis within that first 30 days after platelet recovery. If there was a clot, then you continue anticoagulation, again, through platelet recovery, and then after platelet recovery for a total of three months. So similar to like when we have a provoked DVT or something like that, for instance. So that's a good rule of thumb. One month if there's no clot, three months if there is a clot. And that's why we also recommended everybody get Dopplers done so that we can make that assessment about what the likelihood of them having a clot actually is. And if it's available, I generally do prefer bivalirudin as my infused anticoagulant if that's the approach we're going, just in case the patient ends up needing warfarin. It's kind of tricky to transition someone off of argatraban onto warfarin just because argatraban can also influence the PT. So bival tends to be a sort of cleaner transition. Fondaparinux is similar, a nice clean transition with that if you do need to get someone on warfarin. See, Dan's an old school guy. I just said DOAX and he's like, no, 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 no. What about warfarin? I mean, warfarin is cost effective and also, it is the preferred agent in some patients, right? I mean, you can monitor the levels. There are other reasons to do warfarin. And if you're making that transition to warfarin, remember you have to bridge with that anticoagulant until your warfarin becomes therapeutic, which is why this whole issue comes into place and why bivalirudin might be a preferred agent because it's easier to transition them onto warfarin. 
I think that we're going to see the DOAX increasingly used here. Warfarin, I, I do see sometimes preferred depending on proceduralist preference. If the surgeon who did the cardiac surgery feels strongly that they need something immediately reversible, oftentimes they will push for warfarin. But it does seem that the DOACs treat this condition quite well. And I think once we have a, a reliable DOAC reversal agent, fingers crossed for serum purintag coming down the pipeline, that that may no longer be as much of a consideration. So I wanted to highlight a couple of key things that we talked about today. One is that postoperatively, thrombocytopenia is very common. Cardiac surgery, 50% of patients will have a hit antibody present, right? So keep those things in mind. An antibody doesn't mean that the patient has hit. Thrombocytopenia doesn't mean necessarily that the patient has hit. We have to look at the whole clinical context for these patients. Postoperatively, if you have a transient increase and then a second drop, so down, up, down, that's when you start to worry about HIT because it takes five to seven days for you to make that antibody, which makes the timing make a whole lot of sense. We talked about the pathophysiology for thinking about why we have thrombocytopenia and why we have thrombosis. That 4T score is discriminating patients who will have a positive HIT ELISA. It's not discriminating patients who will have HIT. So that's very important. 4T doesn't mean, yes, I have hit. We risk stratify, but it's not well calibrated, meaning that it's not like your chance of hit is 95%. It just risk stratifies your chance of a positive ELISA test, which is detecting if antibody is present. It's a color change. If more antibody is present, that optical density, that color change is a lot higher. And we know, and we're going to link it to our show notes, depending on that change, you have a different chance of your confirmatory test or that serotonin release assay being positive. When you have a higher optical density, that's when you get reflexes to that serotonin release assay to actually tell us whether we have hit or not. You can see that the 4T score is looking just for positive ELISA. The positive ELISA is predicting a positive SRA, which is our gold standard. An intensive test that requires donor platelets that Dan talked about, and you test heparin at no heparin, meaning shouldn't have any issues there, shouldn't have platelet activation. The right amount of heparin should definitely have a positive release of serotonin from those platelets. And then a super therapeutic amount where Dan said there has to be the right ratio of platelets and heparin to have this process happening and to activate platelets. If you have too much, you should have a negative. So you'll have a negative SRA test in the setting of no heparin, a positive SRA test in the setting of therapeutic heparin and a negative SRA test with super therapeutic or too much heparin. And that's how we define our HIP patients. And lastly, we get those four extremity Dopplers and we anticoagulate them until platelet count recovery. And then either for one month, if they had no clot or for three months, if they did have a clot. So bringing this back to our patient, Vivek, I think you and I had talked about him not too long ago, and thankfully he was able to get onto rivaroxaban. That is that there's some decent data for the use of rivaroxaban in patients with HIT, and he completed his three months of anticoagulation therapy, and he's doing well now. And so definitely a success story for this patient and his HIT. But guys, any final thoughts? I thought this was a great discussion. It really did help clarify a lot of the uncertainty. And I personally, I think the thing that's hardest about HIT is understanding all these esoteric coagulation tests and how they work into the overall decision-making. But I think that our discussion really helped clarify a lot of things that I was uncertain about initially. Yeah. And, you know, I think this is just, it's a neat story about how we discovered that there was this pattern in patients who get heparin. We drilled down on what 
was going on with their immune system, recognizing these complexes, and then turned that into a rational way to diagnose whether or not a patient has these pathologic antibodies present. And I'm glad we got to cover the treatment of such an important and fairly common disorder that we see in the hospital. And the last thing I want to say is remember the 4T score is not perfect. It predicts for somebody who will have a positive antibody test. Even if you have a positive antibody test, you might not have hit. You need that serotonin release assay where you just have just the right amount of heparin with platelet factor 4 to make this pathogenic process occur. That sounds great, guys. All right. Well, then I think that wraps up another fantastic episode of The Fellow on Call. Until next time, we'll see you all later. See you later. Peace. Peace.